We begin with the plight of the Uyghur minority in China. The government insisting the camps are vocational training facilities. But rights groups say people in the centers are held against their will and are forced to denounce their language and religion. China has accused the US of trying to suppress Chinese companies after the country added 11 of them to an economic blacklist because of human rights abuses against Muslim minorities. Ambassador, that is not, that is not beautiful coverage, however, is it? Can I ask you why people are kneeling, blindfolded and shaven and being led to trains in modern China? I do not know where you'll get this Abido tape. In the last few weeks, the plight of the Uyghurs in China has been back in the news. The Times correspondent in Istanbul, Hannah Lucinda-Smith, has been speaking to a member of the Uyghur community living in exile about his story. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Turkey and the Uyghur exiles. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hannah Lucinda Smith has been speaking to Uyghurs living in Turkey, and one in particular told her his story. Abdurrahim Paric is a poet from Xinjiang province. He's from the Uyghur minority. And he took the decision to leave China in August 2013. He'd suffered more than a decade of surveillance and pressure from the Chinese authorities. And things were starting to get really, really bad for the Uyghurs in China. Thousands of Uyghurs are now trying to leave China. They use underground routes and secret stopovers to get themselves to Malaysia. Then they try to fly to Turkey. The Turkish government thought willing to help them. So he took the decision to leave on quite a dangerous route to get out of Xinjiang, go through Southeast Asia and get to Turkey. And his plan was to then bring his family after him to claim asylum in Turkey. Abdurrahim is one of an estimated 30,000 Uyghurs living in Turkey, and the majority of them have arrived since 2013. Many live in a suburb of Istanbul, where they've built up a community with Uyghur restaurants, cultural centres and a bookshop. For many, the journey to Turkey was difficult and incredibly risky. They had to sneak out of China into neighbouring Laos before making their way through 
Thailand, and then Malaysia, from where they could finally fly to Turkey. But when he got to Turkey in 2015, he called his wife, and rather than that being the kind of start of their new life, it was the trigger that brought the Chinese authorities to her door. Within a month of that phone call, Abdul Rahim's wife was arrested and sent to a re-education camp. At the time, we didn't know as much about the re-education camps as we know now, especially over the past few months with, for example, the drone footage that was leaked a couple of weeks ago showing Uyghurs seeming to be lined up on train platforms and, and herded onto trains. Various investigations that have been done, satellite imagery, we now know that these are mass camps interning more than a million people, according to the UN. According to the Chinese government, Uyghurs in these camps are being de-radicalised. But the reality is very different. It's kind of cultural assimilation. It's forcing Uyghurs to speak Mandarin rather than the Uyghur language. It's forcing them to drop Muslim habits and often using kind of severe ill-treatment and torture to the extent that I think many Uyghurs have died, including, in fact, Abdurrahim Parech's wife. Almost all Uyghurs in Turkey have completely lost contact with their families back in China. He got some information that also his five brothers and his father had been taken to a re-education camp. He received information that his eldest daughter, who was born in 2001, she had been sent to a language school, which was the precursor of the re-education camps as the school where they are taught Mandarin rather than Uyghur language. And then I think for him, the kind of most difficult piece of information that he got was in 2017. Somebody from his hometown arrived in Turkey. And they told him that two of his children had been involved in an accident on the street and that one of them had died and the other was very seriously injured and been taken to hospital. He couldn't tell him whether that child had also died and he also couldn't tell Abdurrahim which of the six children of his that they were. So he's been left wondering since then which one of his children are dead. And he said that's the kind of most difficult thing. He said that if he knew for sure that his wife was dead and if he knew for sure which of his children were dead, it would give him some kind of closure. But it's the not knowing. He doesn't know. And he has no way to find out. He doesn't even know who to mourn. He doesn't know who to mourn, exactly. One of the things that really struck me when I was talking to Abdurrahim is how kind of matter-of-fact he was and how well he held himself together. When he was telling me, you know, terrible things about what happened to his family, I kept saying, I'm so sorry. And he would say, well, my story isn't unique. You talk to any Uyghur here in Istanbul and they have the same story as me. you first meet Abdul Rahim? Abdul Rahim is, I wouldn't say high profile, but he's quite a well-known member of the Uyghur community. Firstly, because he's a poet. So actually, mm. since he's been here, he's published two books of poetry. He told me that he feels that this might have contributed to his detention and threats of deportation because he was obviously writing poetry about 
what happened to him back in China, what happened to his family. One of the books was called A Village Without a Homeland. So quite political poetry. He's quite well known in that respect, but then also since everything has happened to his family back in Xinjiang province and since the communications with his family have been cut, he's been getting kind of more and more desperate and has been speaking out. And that's something that is quite rare actually for quite a lot of Uyghurs because most of them do have family back in China. Yeah. And if their family are still free, then clearly they don't want to get their family in trouble. Nobody wants to stick their head above the parapet. Exactly. But where did you meet? So we met in Zetenbruno in um, the bookshop. His poetry is actually on sale there. And then we went for lunch at a Uyghur restaurant afterwards, which was my first time eating Uyghur food, actually. What's it like? I would say it's like a cross between very traditional Turkish food and Chinese food. OK, a little hybrid. And can you describe Abdul Rahim? I mean, um, how old is he? What does he look like? Does he look like a poet? He does. He does <laughs> look like a poet. Maybe I'm just uh, projecting that on him because I know he is a poet. <laughs> so he's 46. He's a very young-looking 46. I have to say, he looks very, very well for his age. He's sort of quite short. I mean, the Uyghurs certainly look quite different to Turks, but I would say they also look quite different to Chinese as well. Some Uyghur women are recognisable because they wear the headscarf, but a lot of them are also uncovered. He's quite short, he's quite portly, he's very, very softly spoken and very, very personable. We spoke for a really long time. He said, how do you want to do this? Are you going to ask me questions? I said, no, I'll tell you what, just start from the beginning and tell me your story. He's a very, very eloquent man, so that story was not only an utterly shocking story, but he told it in an incredibly eloquent way. Some of the things that he said and the way that he put things, you know, really kind of hit home. There was one point where he said... We're living in the age of communications, and China is the country that is probably providing the most communications in the world, but that doesn't apply to the Uyghur. You know, we, we don't have communications, it's not for us. That must be so odd. On the one hand, while iPhones are made in China and all kinds of high-tech equipment is made in China, but when it comes to Xinjiang, it's like going back in time 100 years, more. You haven't even got a telegram or a carrier pigeon. There's no way to get in touch with those people in Xinjiang. Just completely cut off. Completely cut off, yeah. Abdul Rahim's life closely shadows the recent history of China's relations with the Uyghur community. So he was born in 1976 in Xinjiang. He started university in the 1990s. And from the time he was born until the time he was at university, things weren't great for the Uyghurs as a minority, but they also weren't terrible. They were sort of living their life. They didn't have as many rights compared to the Han Chinese, the majority ethnic group in China, but things were okay. And then in 1997, Hong Kong was handed back to China by Britain. And Abdul Rahim at that point was at university in a city called Kashgar in Xinjiang. It was a very historic city. It's a Silk Road city. And 
there were some protests on campus about what was happening in Hong Kong, about the fears that the rights of people in Hong Kong might start to be oppressed. And there was a police crackdown in Xinjiang as a result. And he was one of about 200 people, 200 students in that university who were rounded up and arrested. And he was accused of various things like separatism, like stirring religious hatred. And he was put in prison for three years. He was released in 2000. And for the decade that followed, he lived a relatively normal life. In 2001, he got married and his first daughter was born. But all the time he was being watched, he was being followed by the Chinese authorities and he was arrested, he says, about 20 times in that decade. Basically every time that there was some kind of political tensions, he would be hauled in by the police and he would be questioned and interrogated and sometimes he would be put in prison for two or three weeks. Is that what life is normally like if you're a Uyghur? Yeah, I mean, certainly if you're a Uyghur like Abdurrahim Parach, because he'd been in prison for, for three years, he says this is the reason why he was surveyed. So actually, other Uyghurs who I spoke to said that the bulk of the Uyghur community felt, well, if we don't do anything wrong, then, then we'll be fine. For Abdurrahim, all of that changed in 2009. It's been three days since bloody riots broke out, pitting ethnic Uyghur Muslims against the dominant Han Chinese. The spark? Two Uyghur factory workers died in a brawl with the Han. Now 156 people have been killed and more than 1,000 injured, making it the worst ethnic violence this country has seen in decades. So in 2009, riots broke out. In Xinjiang. They started in Urumqi, which is the kind of capital of Xinjiang province. It's the main city. And they were sparked because two migrant workers in Gyeongdong, which is a city in southern China, it's outside of Xinjiang province, had died in their work. And this sparked protests by the Uyghur back in Xinjiang. And they very quickly escalated from protests into ethnic riots between the Uyghur and the Han Chinese in Xinjiang. So over the previous years, many Han Chinese had moved into Xinjiang to work and to open businesses. And this had caused quite a bit of tension. So the Uyghurs saw it as a kind of attempt to dilute their culture or dilute uh, the demographics of the region to change the demographics. And so these tensions have been building for years, and then they reached a tipping point in 2009, and there were five nights of really extreme violence. They spread out from Arumki to other cities, including Kashgar. There were reports of you know, Uyghurs attacking Han businesses, attacking Han people with knives in the streets. And the Chinese government put the region on lockdown and it brought in some international journalists for press tours. Foreign media were immediately invited to Urumqi to see the damage for themselves, albeit on a tightly controlled visit. And it took them to see kind of doctors in the hospitals who said things like it's Han Chinese who are being attacked and they took them to see the businesses that had been attacked and they really played down the impact on the Uyghur community. After those attacks in 2009, how did the Chinese government respond? So almost immediately a crackdown started on the Uyghurs. So within days the government had said that they were going to round up the perpetrators of the protests. A lot of people were arrested. But then over the years following the 2009 riots, then more wide-ranging action was taken against the Uyghurs. The pressure on Uyghurs 
like Abdul Rahim, began to grow. The questioning and the detentions became more and more frequent. China used to deny that these places exist. But now we're being given a tour. The message? These are schools, not prisons. So it was in 2015, 2016 that we first started hearing about Uyghurs being sent to, first of all, language courses, and then later, as Beijing turns it, the re-education camps. The first reports of Uyghurs being kind of rounded up en masse, collective punishments, I guess. One Uyghur in Istanbul put it to me like this. He said, when things first started happening, we thought, oh, well, it's just the religious people. They're just going after the religious people. And then very, very quickly it escalated so that it was all Uyghurs, any Uyghurs who were targeted. Since 2017, up to a million Uyghurs have been placed in what some call concentration camps and the Chinese government calls vocational education centres. So you really didn't have to do anything, just being born Uyghur? That appears to be the case now. I mean, certainly anyone who has a family member who's outside the country are being targeted, in some cases being put into the camps, in other cases it seems like they're being used to try and lure their family back to China. I'm David Baddiel. I'm a writer and a comedian and a Jew. I'm Saeed Avasi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician and a Muslim. Jews and Muslims always seem to be in the news or on the news. Lots of people talk about us and this is us talking about ourselves. The kind of things that people say don't touch, yeah. we are going to go there. I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together because they're worried that if they do, sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew go there. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. But the Chinese government's crackdown is much more than just a response to Uyghur protests. One of the really interesting things that the Uyghurs in Istanbul told me, I, I asked all of them, why do you think that this crackdown started escalating in 2015, 2016? And they all gave me the same answer. They all said it's about China's Belt and Road policy. China's Belt and Road Initiative is the most expensive infrastructure project in history. Called Yidaiyilu in Chinese, the Belt and Road Initiative was first announced by Chinese President Xi Jinping in 2013. It's a globe-spanning plan with the purpose of strengthening trade, infrastructure, and investment links between China and an estimated 65 other countries. It's a policy and a strategic plan to create new trade routes from China to the West. Some are sea routes, but the main one is a land route. It goes through Central Asia, through Turkey. Turkey's a main kind of nexus on it, and then into Europe. And in order for China to enact that, it needs to be making deals with all the countries along the way. It needs to be doing trade deals and, and doing deals to build infrastructure. And obviously, in some cases, if it's dealing with sort of poorer countries, for example, in the Balkans, it's doing quite a lot of investment. But for other countries, particularly in Europe, I think, you know, China needs to it, it keep somehow 
a bit of its decentish image. I mean, no one's under any illusions, I think, that China is a democracy or that it doesn't treat dissidents extremely badly. But certainly the kind of horrifying things that we've heard from the Uyghurs is rightly creating an outcry. And I do think for China that becomes a problem. And I think the more that stories get out about what's happening to the Uyghurs and the more these kind of exiles talk, the bigger problem it is for China. But it should have been an opportunity for other governments who China wanted to be able to trade with, to be able to hold them to account and demand changes. Why does it seem to have got worse? In Turkey, it's certainly got worse. Turkey's in a really tricky position, I think. So at the start, when things started getting really bad for the Uyghurs, Erdogan was quite vocal in a way that I think was actually quite genuine. The president of Turkey, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, is seen as a strong nationalist, but he's also a man for whom religion is incredibly important. Erdogan is obviously a pious Muslim. He's very much concerned a lot of the time with what's happening to Muslims in other countries. So he's very concerned about what's happening to the Palestinians, about what's happening to the Rohingya in Myanmar. Also, at the start, very concerned about what's happening to the Uyghurs. They're not only Muslims, they're also kind of Turkic brothers. Both Uyghurs and Turks refer to Xinjiang province as East Turkestan. Really? Yeah, it's seen as kind of like Turkey's bigger neighbourhood. In fact, if you look in bookshops in Istanbul, you can find world maps and it'll mark out all the countries which are part of, I don't want to say Greater Turkey, but the kind of the Turkic world, put it that way. So places like Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan, so, yeah, he was very vocal. And I remember in 2015, he was going on a visit to China and he said, I'm going to bring this up with the Chinese government. This is unacceptable. He also flew about 150 Uyghurs to Turkey. So these were Uyghurs who were imprisoned. They were being threatened with deportation back to China. And he stepped in in 2015 and flew them straight to Turkey. Wow. Yeah, it's quite an openly supportive stance. That's a big symbolic gesture. A massive symbolic gesture. And very popular with the Turkish people, actually, because, again, Turks feel a kind of kinship with the Uyghur. They're really kind of sad and horrified about what's happening to them. But things really started to change in 2017. And this was the time that the Turkish economy started doing really, really badly for a number of reasons. Now... Erdogan has always insisted and continues to insist that he will not go to the International Monetary Fund for a bailout, which is what, frankly, is really needed. In place of that, he's been looking around for other places that might help the Turkish economy out. One of the countries that's helped to prop up the Turkish economy is China. There hasn't been a kind of one massive cash injection from China. But what there has been since 2017 is a kind of series of smaller lifelines. Having fled China, life in Turkey for Uyghurs was safer, but it wasn't easy. Turkish bureaucracy made residency papers, travel documents and work permits a minefield. And then, in 2017... Turkish police started arresting Uyghurs and threatening them with deportation. They were given various reasons why this was, but one man in particular who I met in Istanbul managed to get his Turkish police papers 
And on them, he saw that China had requested his extradition in 2016. And also when the Turkish police were questioning him, they had a photo of him that was taken in China 15 years ago. And he says the only way they could have got this is from the Chinese authorities. So he's accused in Turkey of being involved with the terrorist group, of trying to organize terror attacks back in China. He obviously denies everything. He says that it's just purely because I am a distant and I've escaped. Now, I think it's really important to put this in context. First of all, the number of Uyghur who've actually been deported from Turkey are very, very low. It's in the single digits. And most of the time when they're deported, they're not deported straight back to China. They're deported to a third country who then deal with them in their own way. So I've heard of Uyghurs being deported to Tajikistan, for example, and to other countries. And is there a sign that they're any safer there? Or does it just delay the process? No, it just delays the process and it takes it out of Turkey's hands, if you like. Because as far as Turkey is concerned, they're not deporting them to China. Turkey isn't the only country where the Uyghurs' fortunes have waned. In 2017, Egypt began arresting and deporting Uyghurs back to China. So many of the Uyghurs who'd been living in Egypt fled to Turkey. I really think, actually, that Erdogan genuinely wants to help the Uyghur. I don't think it was just posturing when he was talking a lot in 2015 and when he brought Uyghur from Thailand. I don't think that was just political cynicism. I think he genuinely wants to help them. But I think he's really stuck at this point. The Turkish economy is in such a dire place that really he just can't afford to anger China. And I think almost certainly what has happened is that an ultimatum that China has given him is to stop talking about the Uyghur and possibly even putting pressure on Turkey also to to deport Uyghurs back to China. Although he's managed to write two books of poetry, Abdul Rahim Parich has had difficulties finding work in Turkey. So when he first came, he was doing some work for a Uyghur television channel. He doesn't do that anymore because he wants to keep more of a low profile. Part of his problem now is that A, he can't renew his residency permit, or at least he hasn't been able to yet. He's still waiting. And B, on top of your residency permit, if you want to work in Turkey for a Turkish company, you need a work permit. If you want to work in Turkey for a Turkish company, you need a work permit. And he doesn't have one of those. So his... Options are to take under the table work illegally, which is something that, for example, a lot of Syrians do, so working in factories and working in restaurants. For him, what he's doing is poetry and advocacy. He's really in a bit of a limbo in Turkey at the moment. And does he still feel safe there, or does he feel like his days in Turkey are numbered? Will he have to move on somewhere else? He said, actually, that since the beginning of this year, the situation for Uyghurs seems to have got a little better in Turkey. So there seems to have been a slowdown in the arrests and the deportation threats. Whether that's due to COVID, we don't know. That could be part of it. But certainly he doesn't 
feel particularly secure. He's been detained twice in Turkey, each time for several months. He's obviously been threatened with deportation. He can't work. With Abdurrahim and the Uyghurs you've been speaking to, what are their hopes for the future? I mean, what happens next? One thing that's really struck me, actually, is that when I've spoken to the Uyghurs and we've finished our conversation and we're going our separate ways, every single one of them has been so overwhelmingly thankful. They, they said, you know, thank you so much for writing about us and for trying to do something. And I think they're really, really hoping that this momentum can continue and that it can put some pressure on governments to start taking a hard line with China and to not just do business with China and close their eyes to the human rights abuses that are going on. When you speak to Abdurrahim and, and the others, given that he still has family out there, children that he doesn't know what's happened to them, can any of them imagine going back to China? This was the question I asked him at the end. I said, if you could go back, would you? Given that you don't know what's happened to your family. And he thought about it for a really long time. And he said... If I go back and they kill me, that's not a problem for me. But I spent three years in prison and I know what their torture is like and I can't bear it again. I think that gives you an idea of the level of torture that Uyghurs are going through in Chinese prisons, that a man would forego the chance to perhaps see his family again. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, the Times Istanbul correspondent, Hannah Lucinda Smith. You can read more of Hannah Lucinda's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers were Edward Drummond and Leona Hamid. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Falk and Kisseltuk. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder and Ketzer. If you get a chance, please do leave us a review. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, and now we're also available on the Times Radio app, along with all the other podcasts from the Times. To download the app, search for Times Radio in the App Store. See you tomorrow.